0: This message comes from NPR sponsor MassMutual. The Financial Educators Council says 39% of Americans don't have someone to go to for financial advice, but you can plan for the short and long term with someone backed by 170 years of financial expertise at MassMutual.com.
1: This is Fresh Air. I'm Dave Davies. This week, as we mark the 78th anniversary of the destruction of the Japanese cities of Hiroshima and Nagasaki, American audiences seeing the film Oppenheimer are revisiting the fateful decisions made by U.S. military and political leaders to use atomic weapons on a civilian population. Estimates of those killed in the two cities range from 150,000 to roughly 225,000. Though nine countries now have nuclear weapons, The attacks on Hiroshima and Nagasaki remain their only use in armed conflict. Today we're going to listen back to three Fresh Air interviews which explore whether the use of atomic weapons against Japan was justified and whether the American public was misled about their effects. We begin with Robert J. Lifton, a psychiatrist who has studied the psychological causes and effects of war and political violence. Terry Groh spoke to him in 1995 when he'd published the book Hiroshima in America. He said that Americans had been fed a myth about the decision to use atomic weapons.
2: The myth is, which is the official American narrative of Hiroshima, that we dropped the bomb reluctantly after great reflection only in order to save lives and end the war and that, therefore, it was a good and necessary thing, and that we should not in any way trouble ourselves over it.
3: Um, You you trace uh, the beginning of the official version of the story of the atom bomb and why we dropped it on Hiroshima to a press release um, after the bomb was dropped. Can you read an excerpt of that press release for us, which you reprint in your book, Hiroshima in America?
2: Probably... The most important part of the press release is the first sentence, which reads, 16 hours ago, an American airplane dropped one bomb on Hiroshima, an important Japanese army base. And then the it goes on to say, that bomb had more power than 20,000 tons of TNT. It goes on to say, the Japanese began the war from the air at Pearl Harbor. They have been repaid many fold, and the end is not yet. Only in the third paragraph does it say, it is an atomic bomb. It is a harnessing of the basic power of the universe. The force from which the sun draws its powers has been loosed against those who brought war to the Far East.
3: What is so significant about the first sentence that you read about uh, Hiroshima being an important military base?
2: Well, what's significant about that first sentence is that it's a partial truth, and that And that really matters, because it's true, there was uh, a Japanese military base in Hiroshima. It was a staging area for Southeast Asia, and an important one. But there was also a city of 300,000 people, and the bomb was aimed at the center of the city. It was targeted on civilians, and it was meant to destroy the city. But the press release presented it as a strictly military action, and it blamed more or less the Japanese for this particular event. Now, again, the Japanese bear some blame because they did initiate the war, but it's a way of exonerating America and completely militarize what was really an attack on a whole city.
3: Do you have information that leads you to believe that we could have had a peace with Japan, that Japan would have surrendered had it not been for the atom bombs?
2: There's a lot of evidence of a very good possibility that Japan would have surrendered if an effort at negotiation was initiated by us or responded to by us with the condition that the emperor be maintained. That isn't just an impression that I have or that such leading historians as Barton Bernstein and Martin Sherwin and Gar Alpovich have many others as well, almost any historian who studies these materials comes to that sense of it being at least a very good possibility. And it was stated so uh, among, Truman's, among Truman's advisors. For instance, um, uh, Joseph Grew who was acting secretary of state during part of that period and who knew Japan well strongly advocated that we look into precisely that kind of negotiation because he thought that maintaining the emperor was the only condition that the Japanese were holding to and by not doing that we strengthened the hand of the more fanatical Japanese who didn't want to surrender under any conditions and that position won over John McCloy, who was one of Stimson's closest uh, advisors, and also presented it to President Truman. So at the very uh, top of Truman's advisory group, there was that advocacy and that position. Ironically, one of the things that held them back was waiting for the atomic bomb to be finished and to be ready.
3: Uh, Why do you think a second weapon was used At Nagasaki.
2: Well, a second weapon was really part of the first order. Uh, There was uh, the Nagasaki bomb or the second city, whichever was decided upon, was in that first order, which was to use available atomic bombs or atomic bombs as they became available. So one could have used an endless number of bombs according to that order, and that's the way a military order can be given to have that kind of momentum still uh, in the midst of a bloody war. However, there could have been an order to stop, to interfere and prevent the use of that second bomb. It was not given, and sadly, the second bomb was completed and dropped so quickly that most observers now feel that the Japanese hardly had sufficient time to consider a surrender in between the use of those weapons. There was some impulse to use that second bomb because uh, there was also curiosity about what it could do It was a different kind of bomb from the uranium bomb used on Hiroshima. It was a plutonium bomb of a different kind and of one that was considered to be highly important for the military future. And that could well have been a factor uh, in carrying out the use of that second bomb or not interrupting that momentum of its use.
3: President Truman is, is considered the buck stops here, President, a President who was very decisive, who felt that the use of the bombs in Japan were justified and necessary to end World War II and save um, American lives, um, He, I think has said that he never lost any sleep over the decision.
2: He, President Truman made many such statements that he never lost any sleep, that he made a clear-cut decision, but he made those statements in a very agitated way He spent 25 years of of the remainder of his life, uh, after having made that decision, constantly defending it. And he said very different things. He sometimes said it was just like an artillery weapon. When you have it, you use it. At other times, he said it was an awesome weapon that should never be used because it kills women and children indiscriminately. He had those dual feelings about the weapon. But you have to weigh all of these elements as you come to some kind of psychological profile of this man, who was inherently decent and struggling to carry through his responsibility as a a wartime president as well as he could. He was afraid not to make a decision to use the weapon. It was wartime. It was a bloody war. Americans were enraged at the Japanese. Would they have excused him if he didn't use that weapon? As Burns said, his secretary of state, he might be crucified by the American people and the victim of an overwhelming congressional investigation if the weapon hadn't been used, an investigation of what had happened to that $2 billion used on that project, a really unprecedented sum at that time. So ironically one can use a weapon like that because one is afraid not to use it.
3: Getting back to what you describe as as the myth that we've been told and that we've perpetrated about our use of the bombs in Hiroshima and Nagasaki, see, the myth says that we reluctantly, after great reflection, drop the bombs. You also say that Truman's style, uh, the buck stops here style, was a style that really um, uh, discouraged great reflection.
2: That's right, Uh it's impossible to undergo great reflection when you're impelled toward quick and immediate decision, often before all of the elements of the problem are clear. That makes it very hard for even one's advisers to lay out all of the considerations that one should look at in making such a decision. There wasn't a lot of reflection about using the weapon, There was intermittent thought and some discussion of the direction of negotiation about the emperor. But there was an obsession very early, even before the bomb appeared, before it was completed, with that weapon. And everybody was waiting for the weapon, so much so that some historians have made, I think, a convincing argument that the bomb probably delayed the end of the war and cost American and Japanese lives rather than having saved them because there was some inclination toward negotiating with the Japanese and Truman said that might be a good idea but Then when it was referred to his advisor, Stimson would say, well, the timing isn't right. And the timing isn't right meant that one had to wait for the bomb to appear before any such negotiation. And in that way, there were delays about ending the war that were based on waiting for the bomb and the existence of the bomb. It really shows the danger of creating an object like this and how much it can affect those who create it and contemplate its use. Robert J. Lifton
1: speaking with Terry Gross in 1995 about his book Hiroshima in America. Lifton is now 97, and he has a new book coming out in September titled Surviving Our Catastrophes, Resilience and Renewal from Hiroshima to the COVID-19 Pandemic. Coming up, writer Leslie Bloom on how Americans were misled about the real effects of the atomic bombs dropped on Japan. This is Fresh Air. The deadly effects of radiation poisoning are widely recognized. But journalist Leslie Bloom says that in the year following the atomic attacks, Americans knew little about conditions in the two Japanese cities, which, like the rest of Japan, were under U.S. occupation and military censorship. I spoke to Bloom in 2020 about her book Fallout, the Hiroshima cover-up and the reporter who revealed it to the world. So a second bomb was dropped on Nagasaki, Japan surrendered and after years of war Americans were of course deliriously happy that it was over what did they know about the destruction and death that uh, the weapon had visited on hiroshima
5: well i mean at first it appeared that the us government was being almost ecstatically forthright about the new weapon and when you know president truman announces the the bombing he says, look, this is the biggest bomb that's ever been used in the history of warfare and you know, the Japanese should surrender or they can expect a rain of fire and ruin from the sky unlike you know, anybody's ever seen before. We've unleashed the power of the sun. I mean, it was almost biblical language. So they knew, everybody who heard the announcement knew that they were dealing with something totally unprecedented, not just in the war, but in the history of, of human warfare. What was not stated was, you know, the fact that this bomb had radiological qualities, and that even blast survivors on the ground um, would be, you know, would die in an agonizing way for the days and the weeks and the months and years that that followed.
1: Right. And so, in in the weeks and months that followed, what was being said about radiation and its effects? I mean, American generals had testified before Congress on this. How did they characterize well, very, in, the risk?
5: Yeah, in, in immediate weeks, you know, very little. I mean, a lot of it was really painted in, you know, landscape devastation, uh, you know, pict- photographs, landscape photographs were were released to newspapers showing, you know, the decimation of Hiroshima and Nagasaki, and I mean, they were rubble pictures. Um, and also, you know, obviously, people are seeing the mushroom cloud photos taken from, from the bombers themselves, or from recon missions, and but in terms of the radiation you know e- even in the announcement truman's announcement of the of the bomb he's painting the bombs in conventional terms he says you know these bombs are the equivalent to 20,000 tons of tnt and so americans you know they 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 don't understand they know that it's a mega weapon but they don't understand the full nature of the weapons yet you know the radiological effects are not in any way highlighted to the American public. And in the meantime, you know, the U.S. military is scrambling to find out how, the you know, the radiation of the bombs is affecting the physical landscape, how it's affecting human beings, because they're about to send tens of thousands of occupation troops into Japan. So they, you know, they're sending their own recon missions in late August of 1945 onto the ground to Hiroshima and Nagasaki to, to see if they can, in good conscience, clear the atomic cities for occupation. And they, they do declare, you know, privately, you know, amongst themselves that the radiation has, has dwindled to nothing because of you know, because of the height at which the bomb had been detonated. They, they said that much of it had been reabsorbed back into the atmosphere. But they would also, you know, start to study the blast survivors who had taken in radiation to their bodies, you know, when the blast went off and look at how it affected them. The fact is that the people who had created the bombs didn't have a full understanding of what the bombs were going to wreak on landscape and and humans, and were going to be studying that for years while they were on the ground occupying Japan.
1: You mentioned uh, Lieutenant General Leslie Groves. I think he was actually involved in the Manhattan Project, right? Uh,
5: Rather involved, yes, the the spearheader of said project. He was uh, charged with building the bomb for wartime use and managed to do it in three years, which was uh, quite miraculous, and in his, his mind, I mean, he, Leslie Groves never had any moral qualms whatsoever about the, the decimation or, you know, the, the radi- radiation agonies. Um, afterwards, he had been told, get this bomb ready for, for wartime use, and he did that. And, you know, that was, in you know, his eyes, a huge triumph.
1: Right. And, and he was, I think he was the one who said that, that um, you could live there forever of Hiroshima and Nagasaki, right? Um, no problem.
5: Yeah so well you know again as news started to filter over from Japanese reports about what it was like on Hiroshima and Nagasaki in the aftermath wire reports started picking picking up you know really disturbing information about you know the, to- the totality of the decimation and you know this sinister what they called you know a disease x that was ravaging blast survivors you know, so this news was starting to trickle over early in, in August of 1945 to Americans, and so the U.S. realized that not only were they they going to have to really try to study very quickly, you know, how radioactive the atomic cities might have been, you know, as they were bringing in their own occupation troops, but they realized that they had a potential PR disaster on their hands, you know, because the U.S. had just won this horribly hard-earned military victory and were on the moral high ground, they felt, in defeating the Axis powers. And, you know, they had avenged Pearl Harbor, they had avenged Japanese atrocities throughout the Pacific Theater in Asia. But then, you know, reports that they had decimated, you know, a largely civilian population in this excruciating way with an experimental weapon, you know, it, it was concerning because it might have deprived the U.S. government of their moral high ground.
1: You know there were reports from Japan about the level of destruction and also about uh, lasting effects from radiation poisoning. Um, how did us the U.S. military respond to these reports?
5: Well, they went they went on a PR. Uh, they they created a PR campaign to really combat the notion that you know the U.S. had decimated uh, these these populations with a really destructive radiological weapon. And, uh, you know, they dispatched uh, Leslie Groves and, and uh, Robert Oppenheimer themselves went to, this, to the Trinity site of testing to and brought a junket of reporters so they could, you know, sh- show off the area. And they said, you know, that there was no residual radiation whatsoever and that, therefore, any news that was filtering over from Japan were, quote, Tokyo tales. So right away, they, they went into overdrive to contain that narrative.
1: So I understand you saying they took them to a site in the United States where a weapon had been tested and showed them. That there they, was no residual radiation.
5: Yes, they did. They went to the the Trinity site, which is in New Mexico, where the first uh, atomic bomb had been uh, had been tested successfully tested on July sixteenth of nineteen forty five. And you know, meanwhile, you know, the, this junket of you know two dozen reporters gets there, and around the detonation site, you know, the 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 sand in the desert has been turned to, to green glass because of the impact of the bomb, and they're all wearing booties, but you know, uh, to to cover their shoes from possible radiological uh, particles. But, you know, Leslie Groves is there to give a junket saying that, you know, hey, everything's okay here. And, you know, you could live here forever. You could live in Hiroshima and Nagasaki forever, too. There's nothing to see here, folks.
1: So the U.S. military was saying these reports of terrible suffering and lingering radiation effects were Japanese propaganda. This also happened in the context of you know the moral judgments that might people might be, make about such a weapon, and the the military was putting it in the context of the way the war had begun and the way the Japanese had behaved. How did all that set the context for the American response?
5: Look, Americans were still enraged by Pearl Harbor, and they, um, you know, had had a horrific time fighting in the Pacific theater, and. Uh, you know, casualties were, were enormous. Um, you know, Japanese tenacity in battles was unlike anything Americans had encountered before. Um, you know, Americans were horrified by Japanese atrocities in China and throughout Asia. And the, the the feeling of righteousness, of righteous rage and vengeance in dropping the bombs was near total. And, you know, Harry Truman himself articulated that in his speech when he when he uh, announced the bombing. He said the Japanese have now been re- repaid manyfold. Um, and just, you know, one quick stat really illustrates the, the mindset of the Americans towards the bombings at that time. In August of 1945, a poll was taken, and nearly a quarter of the American surveyed said that they wished that they could have dropped many more atomic bombs on Japan before the country had, had surrendered. So that's, that's a pretty strong indication of how high the support was.
1: There were clearly reporters in the Pacific theater who wanted to get the story about, about the effects of atomic weapons, and, and there was some reporting. On the whole, did it, did it capture and convey what was happening to the American people?
5: Yeah, I mean,
3: the,
5: many of the reporters who were coming in with uh, the occupied forces, for them, getting in on the ground to Hiroshima and Nagasaki was a huge scoop, and a few of them did make it in there, and a few of them were able to get out really alarming initial reports that were, you know, heavy heavy on facts about devastation and the fact that there was a, a, some kind of a terrible affliction kill, still killing off blast survivors, but light on details because nobody knew what what on earth, you know, was, was in reality happening in the aftermath of of the bombings. Um, however, they didn't, you know, these reports, you know, some of them appeared only in truncated form in American press. And after they came out, General MacArthur's occupation forces were able to quickly organize to suppress additional such reporting.
1: Right. So people, so reporters couldn't get in. And meanwhile, you had the American government saying, you know, you're hearing a lot of Japanese propaganda that you should be skeptical of.
5: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the American uh, officials were were saying for the most part, you know, this is just, you know, these are the 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 defeated Japanese is trying to create international sympathy to create better terms for themselves in the occupation, ignore them.
1: So there was a lot that people didn't know about what had happened in Hiroshima and Nagasaki, and it was John Hersey that ultimately kind of changed that. So, John Hersey manages to get to Hiroshima, and he, of course, had covered the war in Europe and had seen horrific damage from Allied bombing of German cities. What did Hiroshima look like then, and how did it compare to Hersey's expectations?
5: Uh, well, I mean, Hersey had seen everything from that point, from, from combat to concentration camps. But he and he and let's not forget he came in through Tokyo, which had been decimated. But he later said that nothing prepared him for what he saw in Hiroshima. I mean, the devastation was just so total. And even though he and you know people around the world had seen uh, d- devastated cities for years, at that point, um, the thing that terrified him the most was that this had been done by one single ten thousand pound primitive bomb. One weapon had created all of this destruction and misery. And, you know, even though it was nearly a year later, I mean, it was still just a sort of smoldering wreck. Um, You know, many people had returned to Hiroshima to try to start rebuilding their lives on the ruins. But, I mean, uh, that really amounted to living in these rusted shanties on on top of, again, what is essentially a graveyard.
1: Right. Now, he had to find people who had experienced the explosion, survived it and were willing to talk about it, and he didn't have a lot of time. How'd he do it?
5: Well, he... He was lucky. He uh, and but but he was also strategic. He had read an article before he got in about um, some German priests who had been uh, in in um, Hiroshima and survived and had given a survival testimony to um, that had run in Time magazine, and so he knew that they had um, had returned to Hiroshima. So he sought them out, and fortunately, a couple of them spoke English. And Hersey won over their their trust. They gave him their testimonies about what it had been like for them on August 6, 1945. And then not only did they agree to be his translator because they spoke Japanese, Hersey did not, Um, they also began to make introductions for him within the blast survivor community.
1: Well, Leslie Bloom, thank you so much for speaking with us.
5: It was my pleasure. Thank you for having me on.
1: Leslie Bloom's book is Fallout, the Hiroshima cover-up and the reporter who revealed it to the world. Coming up, writer Evan Thomas on the actions of key U.S. and Japanese leaders in the closing months of World War II. This is Fresh Air.
4: This message comes from NPR sponsor BetterHelp. When you keep your stress bottled up, it can eat away at you. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to make them better. Try BetterHelp Online Therapy, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp at betterhelp.com NPR today to get 10% off your first month. This message comes from NPR sponsor Redfin. Redfin updates their listings every two minutes and gives personalized recommendations based on the homes that you like so you can find the home that's just right for you. You can favorite homes, share listings with others, and even schedule tours with a local Redfin agent all in the app. When you're ready to buy, an experienced local Redfin agent can guide you through the whole process, and they know how to help you win the right home at the right price. So download the Redfin app to get started today. This message comes from NPR sponsor, the official Hacks podcast from Max. Join the creators and showrunners of Hacks as they discuss each episode and speak with the cast and crew about the making of the series.
1: As we mark the anniversary of the destruction of Hiroshima and Nagasaki, we're listening to interviews about the American decision to use the only atomic weapons ever employed in armed conflict. Veteran journalist Evan Thomas's book, The Road to Surrender, profiles three leaders, two American and one Japanese, involved in critical decisions leading up to the end of World War II. In the summer of 1945, Germany had surrendered to the Allies, while Japan, largely defeated, was defiant and still capable of inflicting horrific casualties on any force that might try and invade the Japanese mainland. So in the summer of 1945, the efforts to develop an atomic bomb are coming to fruition. Uh, The Secretary of War, Stimson, knew about this and there was discussion of if it was to be used, what kind of target would it be? Should you drop it in the ocean? Should you drop it in a in an uninhabited area to you know to demonstrate its power? Give us a sense of there was a targeting committee. What its deliberations were like?
6: There was a targeting committee of, of military and people, largely and some scientists, and their big issue was to make sure that they hit the target at all it would be nice if we could hit a port or some factories or a military base but if you're dropping a bomb from 30,000 feet it just wasn't that accurate and the targeting committee decided that the best thing to do was to pick a target smack in the middle of a city in Hiroshima it was a bridge in the middle of Hiroshima and yes Hiroshima was a military city in the sense that it had military forces there, it had ports on the outside, there was a military base there. It was still basically a civilian city, it was full of civilians. And so the target committee decided not to take the chance of going after a military target, but to drop the bomb right in the middle of the city where they were sure they would strike it, and it would set off a heck of a big bang. Uh, They did not have many regrets about that. There's no evidence of them saying, oh, my God, we're going to kill a lot of civilians. There were some civilians who worried about it. But the military, the people on the target committee, they wanted to drop that bomb and they wanted to make sure it hit its target.
1: There was discussion of trying to convince the Japanese to surrender. And one of the things was what would happen with the Emperor Hirohito. Um, The presence of the emperor presented a special problem. What was it? What was his status?
6: Well, he was divine in, in Japanese Shinto religion. He was the man in charge, but he wasn't really. His legitimacy depended on the military. They, they propped him up. The idea was that the emperor should be above politics, not dragged into politics. As a practical matter, it made him a tool of the military. And the Japanese government was just determined to preserve the emperor, their their existence, in the government depended on there being an emperor. If not this emperor, at least some other emperor. But they wanted to keep the imperial system. They were completely wedded to this idea that that there had to be an emperor. After all, he was divine.
1: So let's look at what's happening in Japan here. Um, There were a lot of military leaders who were determined to fight to the end. But one person that you focus on was the foreign minister, Shigenori Togo, who had a different take on this. He wanted peace. Tell us about him.
6: Togo was the one civilian on the Supreme War Council. The rest were the war minister, Army and Navy chiefs of staff, the prime minister. They're all in uniform. Togo's the one civilian. And he's the only one who wants to surrender, who wants to save his country by surrendering all the others want to fight to the to the bitter end they they believe that for two reasons one is there's something almost mystical and grand about national suicide and they talk this way that the, the the 100 million they say will die for the emperor the other piece though is they believed that if they could make the americans bleed enough suffer enough take enough casualties then the americans would give them terms that they wanted. They knew they were defeated. They knew their f- fleet was sunk and their, their their army was was about to be defeated. But they hoped that if they could make us bleed, we would give them the terms they wanted, which were no occupation, no no American troops on Japan, no war crimes trials, because they knew that as leaders of Japan, they were going to be tried for war
1: crimes. So they didn't want that.
6: And lastly, they wanted to keep their emperor.
1: So Shigenori Togo, the, the foreign minister, he tries to get the Soviet, he reach out to the Soviet Union to have them negotiate, approach the Allies on behalf of Japan. That kind of doesn't really go anywhere. But then he also tries to work the others on the Supreme Council, this body that's running the country at the time, to sort of massage them and get them to see reality and let's 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 end this thing. And then you write that in June, six weeks before the atomic bombs were dropped. He met with the emperor and that the emperor said, please terminate the war as quickly as possible. And when I read that, I thought, well, gosh, why didn't that settle the question if the emperor had the authority?
6: The emperor has the authority in theory, but in practice— He doesn't have that authority. He's too dependent on the military himself. For one thing, the emperor, Hirohito, is somewhat of a meek-seeming figure. He has a reedy voice. Uh, He likes marine biology. He's not a warrior type at all. And he exists at the sufferance of the military. In June, the emperor hears that the military is thinking of removing him from Tokyo and taking him up to their mountain redoubt and, in effect making him their prisoner. He refuses. He shows some backbone. For once, he stands up to them, but he knows that he's very much a tool of the military. He doesn't like to admit it, but that is the practical reality.
1: Um, in July, in the United States, the atom bomb is successfully tested. So it's clear that the United States is going to have an operable weapon to drop on Japan and the idea emerged among Stimson and uh, the Secretary of War and others of rather than dropping the bomb to give the Japanese a warning saying, we have this terrible weapon and we will not drop it if you will surrender uh, and perhaps even we'll let you keep your emperor at least in some kind of ceremonial role. Um, How does Harry Truman regard this idea? Truman
6: and his new Secretary of State, Jimmy Burns, do not want to give the Japanese an out. Uh, Burns and Truman regard the Japanese as being uh, duplicitous, uh, and if you give them an inch, they'll take a mile. And they are afraid that if you say to the Japanese you can keep their emperor, that will just be an excuse for them to fight on. In that judgment, the uh, the president actually has some backing from the military community that also worries about them. They They have fresh memories of Pearl Harbor when the Japanese continued to negotiate even as they were getting ready to strike Pearl Harbor militarily. So they just don't trust the Japanese. And the proof of that, I think, is in the debates in the Supreme War Council after we had dropped two atom bombs on Japan. The militarists still wanted to fight on. The, the most revealing moment is that at a meeting of the Supreme War Council on August 9th, the bomb is dropped on Hiroshima. They're talking about what to do. Word comes that another Hiroshima-style bomb has just taken out Nagasaki. And the Supreme War Council, the six of them, are now divided they're stalemated, and it takes in Japan it takes a consensus to make a decision. They're stalemated on whether to surrender. That's after we had dropped two atom
1: bombs. Evan Thomas's book is The Road to Surrender: Three Men and the Countdown to End World War II. We'll hear more of our conversation after a break. This is Fresh Air.
0: This message comes from NPR sponsor, Chevron. Methane management is a critical part of achieving a lower carbon future. Chevron is taking action to keep methane in the pipe. They're committed to evolving facility designs and operating practices, and they've trialed over 13 advanced detection technologies, including drones and satellites. That's energy in progress. Learn more at chevron.com methane.
4: This message comes from NPR sponsor Mattress Firm. How do you sleep at night? No matter what might be keeping you up, Mattress Firm can help anyone sleep. Mattress Firm will find you the right mattress from a wide selection of top brands at every budget. Plus, if you see a lower price somewhere else, they'll match it up to 120 nights with their low price guarantee. Get matched at Mattress Firm's Memorial Day sale and sleep at night. Restrictions apply. See mattressfirm.com or store for details. This message comes from NPR sponsor Progressive Insurance, where drivers who switch could save hundreds on car insurance. Get your quote at progressive.com today. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates.
1: This is Fresh Air, and we're listening to the interview I recorded earlier this year with Evan Thomas, whose new book, The Road to Surrender, is about three leaders, two American and one Japanese, in the closing months of World War II. Just after the U.S. successfully tested an atomic bomb in July 1945, Allied leaders, including Winston Churchill, Joseph Stalin, and Harry Truman, met in a summit known as the Potsdam Conference. Before the bomb is dropped, there is there is a meeting at Potsdam, which is a suburb of Berlin, right? It's in Germany, defeated Germany. And out of that comes a lot of things, including a, a message to Japan. What was the message from, from the Allied leaders then?
6: The message was called the Potsdam Declaration, and it basically said, you have to surrender, or we'll destroy you. Period. It didn't have a lot of particulars in it, uh, and the Japanese got that message and rejected it summarily. Uh, they, they, there's a, there's a word for it. They, uh, in Japanese, it, it means to treat with silent contempt.
1: Right. So the United States decides to proceed with dropping the first weapon. Um, you note that um, the commander, General Carl Spotts insisted on a written order for this. He he wasn't going to going to do this on some verbal command. And it's a long flight from the Marianas where, where this B-29 left and dropped the bomb over Hiroshima. Um, it was devastating, of course. And, you know, this is a time, you know, we kind of – we're used to instant communication in our age. But, in fact, it took a long – some time for – the perception of this disaster, this this kind of carnage to, to make its way around the world and even in Japan. It's interesting where Truman hears news that the bomb had been dropped. Tell us that story.
6: Truman is on a ship coming back from the Potsdam Conference when he first learns that the bomb has been dropped on Hiroshima. And he says this is the greatest thing in history. He's excited about it. Uh, He, at least in in the mess hall with the sailors, uh, he is enthusiastic. And he gives a pretty strong speech warning the Japanese that another one is coming their way if they don't surrender. Now, what is Truman really thinking? That is a harder question. And I think the most interesting evidence of it, uh, this is indirect, but on the day that Truman gives the order to drop the atom bomb, July 25th, 1945. That evening, he writes in his diary, I have ordered the Secretary of War, Henry Stimson, and we are in agreement that the target should be purely military, not civilian, that we should kill soldiers and sailors, not women and children. Well, what is he thinking? because, as we've mentioned earlier, the aim point of the bomb was a bridge in the middle of Hiroshima. Of course it was going to kill women and children. It did. As it happened, it killed about 10, maybe 20,000 soldiers, but fifty or 60,000 civilians right away, instantly, uh, including most of them women and children, because the men were off at war. So what was Truman thinking? Well, He may have been badly briefed. That's possible. We don't really have a good record of that. But more likely, he and Stimson had decided that day to remove another city, Kyoto, from the target list that had been on the target list. And I think that they were feeling that they had done the right thing by sparing the ancient cultural capital of Japan, therefore saving a beautiful and magnificent city, And they were, I think, in a way, congratulating themselves on that. And so they chose to view Hiroshima as a military target, even though it wasn't. This is human denial. It's kind of incredible to think that the president and the secretary of war didn't really know what they were doing. But I think under the pressure of this kind of thing, maybe we shouldn't be so surprised that the information is murky, that human denial kicks in. Still, it's hard to explain.
1: All right, so when the the bomb is dropped on Hiroshima and this incredible destruction, the Japanese military leaders are some distance away in Tokyo. Do they understand what's happened? The Japanese military leaders
6: have been working on building an atom bomb for Japan for years, and they've failed at it. So they are aware that it is possible to build an atom bomb. They know that. They don't want to believe that the Americans have done it, but the evidence is considerable that they have they stall they hem they haul they send a plane down a scientist to look at it it takes a day or two for the plane to get there and the scientist to get back they are also in denial they don't want to believe what's happening and when they finally do exceed that well it's an atom bomb they think well they must only have one atom bomb because they must not have enough uranium material to build more than one and then of course there's a second and that there goes that argument And then they are just in a kind of a a suicidal fugue state. Some of them realize we've got to surrender. Others want to fight on.
1: And what you see is, in effect, I mean, some of the military commanders attempt to stage a coup. Um, Shigenori Togo, the foreign minister, goes to see the Emperor Hirohito, and he actually declares that we have to end this, right? He issues a sacred decision, a seidan, am I pronouncing that correctly? Yes. Yeah.
6: There, there is this little tiny peace party under Togo uh, that is working, uh, working the emperor, working the palace. And the, the emperor by August 9th is worried about a couple of things. He doesn't really trust his own military. He's afraid maybe they're going to kidnap him, take him up into the mountains. But he's also worried that a third atom bomb may come for him, may come for Tokyo. He's not wrong to be worried about this. His own palace was largely burned at the end of May by American firebombs. He's basically living in a shelter underneath his library. And finally, finally, he declares a sedan, a sacred decision uh, that, that and he says, he gathers together his military advisors in his shelter and he says, I agree with Togo, with Foreign Minister Togo. We have to surrender. Now, it's not the end of the story because although they accept the American demand for a surrender, the Japanese insist that the emperor must remain and be sovereign. Well, back in Washington, they're not going to buy that. Truman and Stimson and Burns, they're not going to allow the emperor to remain sovereign. They want the emperor not to be reporting to God, but to Douglas MacArthur, to the supreme allied commander, who is going to take over when the Americans arrive. So the Americans uh, reject that term, and we're back at square one. The military wants to keep on fighting, and the stalemate goes on for another four or five days, uh, and it's not clear that the Japanese are ever going to surrender. And Truman, President Truman, starts thinking about using a third bomb, a third nuclear bomb, a third atomic bomb. He tells the British government that sadly, he's preparing to drop a third atom bomb on Tokyo.
1: Hmm. So in the end, the atomic bombs did convince the Japanese with some difficulty to surrender. But for a long time, you know, the details of what it was like in Hiroshima and Nagasaki were not really known to the American public. And about a year later, there was a full issue of The New Yorker dedicated to it, written by John Hersey, who had spent an awful lot of time in Hiroshima gathering information. And it was shocking. It was widely quoted. It was read in full on radio broadcasts. And questions were raised about the use of such a horrific weapon, Uh, Were were we war criminals for having done this. And Henry Stimson, the war secretary at the time, the the man who had a lot of moral qualms himself, was engaged to write a response, which he did, um, saying it Dropping the bomb was the right thing to do. It saved lives. What was his case?
6: He argued that it was the least abhorrent alternative. It was abhorrent, but the alternative was an invasion of Japan that would have cost the lives of of millions of Americans. Now, personally, he felt guilty that we didn't try hard enough to get the Japanese to surrender beforehand by letting them keep their emperor. I ask in the book, should he have felt guilty? And my answer is no, because the Japanese, I think the record is pretty clear now, the Japanese just were not going to surrender, even if we offered them to keep their emperor. The other piece of this puzzle that, that, that is important here to recognize, it's, it's not just Americans that we saved by not invading Japan. It's Japanese, because if we hadn't invaded Japan, we would have blockaded Japan, and we would have starved them. They were already down to 1,500 calories a day per person, roughly, and they by, say, the winter of 45, 46, would have suffered a famine. We had figured out how to cut their rail lines into the plain of Tokyo. We were gonna be able to squeeze off their rice the rice crop was already the worst they'd had in years. And they were going to start dying. And they were going to have civil war. Who knows what would have happened? Not just in Japan, but also in Asia. The Japanese, the brutal Japanese occupation of China and Southeast Asia was killing people at the rate of roughly 250,000 a month. And that was just going to go on and on. So by ending the war in August... We not only saved Japanese lives, we saved a great number of Asian lives. There's a lot of research on this uh, that shows that the death tolls, had we not bombed uh, Hiroshima and Nagasaki, would have been many multiples of the death tolls in Hiroshima and Nagasaki. It's a brutal equation. You know, it just, it's, the, the point here is that wars are easy to get into, but they are hard to get out of. And there was no way out.
1: Well, Evan Thomas, thanks so much for speaking with us. Thanks, Dave. Evan Thomas's book is The Road to Surrender, Three Men and the Countdown to End World War II. On Monday's show, Terry speaks with Christopher Nolan, director of the new film Oppenheimer, about Robert Oppenheimer, the man known as the father of the atom bomb. Nolan also directed the Batman trilogy, Dunkirk, Inception, and Insomnia. I hope you can join us. Fresh Air's executive producer is Danny Miller. Our senior producer today is Roberta Shorak. Our technical director and engineer is Audrey Bentham, with additional engineering support by Joyce Lieberman and Julian Hertzfeld. For Terry Gross and Tanya Mosley, I'm Dave Davies.
4: This message comes from NPR sponsor Capella University. With Capella's FlexPath Learning Format, you can earn your degree online at your own pace and get support from people who care about your success. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. This message comes from NPR sponsor Shopify, the global commerce platform that helps you sell and show up exactly the way you want to. Customize your online store to your style. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash NPR.